0: Welcome to the Noise Careers podcast. I'm your host Jesse Cannon, and today I'm joined by Kevin Gates. Kevin is a Springfield, Missouri-based producer who's done awesome work with Never Shout Never, Katie Groves, Robance on a Rocket Ship, Stephen Jurzak, the Regans, the Ready Set, Plug in Stereo, and plenty more. Uh, I think this is a really, really cool conversation. Kevin is super, super insightful and has um, articulation about a lot of things we've heard said on this podcast that no one has quite articulated the way he has and has a wide variety of interesting things to say. I think this episode's pretty rad. So once you get done with it, check out his bio, his Spotify playlist, and his discography over on Noise Creators and get to know him a little better. Thanks, and check it out. Hey. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Careers is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service. And we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out if you like this and like what we're doing. Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to just start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So, what's your chain for recording your voice today?
1: Uh, right now, I am using, like I said, a boutique mic. It is a Shure SM7B <laughs> into uh, an API thirty one twenty four plus nice. into uh, my favorite compressor on the entire planet, the Distressor, Empirical Labs.
0: Very nice.
1: I would say that this is my go to vocal chain for about eighty five percent of the projects I do. Wow! So it's it's if it's if it's good for Michael Jackson, it's good for me. <laughs> I, I I like that. I like that. So tell me about your background in music. I started just dabbling in music very young. We had a piano mm-hmm. in my house, well, uh, well uh, a Casio keyboard. We weren't one of those families with a grand piano or anything. Mm-hmm. From there, it progressed. I did uh, seven years of band and orchestra, including marching band. I was a complete band geek in high school, and I'm totally proud of it. From there, when I got to college, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to start playing around with some of these side instruments more. So I started focusing more on guitar and other things that I just kind of dabbled with in the past. And from that, it turned to uh, commercialized pop rock bands and whatnot. Uh, beginning in 2005, I spent four years in a a decent little pop rock outfit called the day away Mm -hmm. we did some uh some some dates on the warp tour here and there and uh sold sold about twenty five thousand records independently and i was kind of proud of where that went never never got that elusive u.s record uh major label record contract but uh we got some you know japanese and european distribution and whatnot and had a lot of fun uh and that was kind of where uh i i started first dabbling in recording that was where i I started recording demos for the band and I started to realize, hey, this is kind of fun too. This is almost more fun than, you know, touring in a in a van with six smelly dudes and uh getting sweaty on stage every night. <laughs> I like that.
0: So tell me about how this uh, how the production career develops.
1: The production career <clears throat> really started with uh, other bands in the local scene here in springfield missouri which i'm sure you can tell is quite huge (laughs) they started Mm -hmm. uh listening to the demos that i had done for my own band and you know i started getting a couple offers well hey you want to record for us and i'm like sure so 50 75 bucks for a demo i started recording out of a house that my friend was renting and he had an extra bedroom from there i just it kind of progressed as as uh I found that I found that working with other bands and working on material that I wasn't familiar with mm-hmm. was a lot more informative as far as like uh develop it, developing developing my, my skills and forcing me to think outside the box if i was working on my own demos something i'd written i was i was kind of staying in my little safe zone but working with someone else's music it was forcing me to uh, uh look into new techniques that i hadn't considered before so that's where i really started to develop into what i consider a producer where you can take a, a piece of a piece of music and and think about it in a stereo spectrum and how you can make it hit with impact so
0: you have your own studio can you tell us a bit about that
1: yes i do uh in 2007, while I was still in the band, I purchased a home here in uh, West Central Springfield, just three minutes west of downtown. Mm-hmm. It was an old house. Well, I guess it is a whole old house. Uh, mm-hmm. Built built in 1896, completely, uh, completely unrecognizable from its original state. But uh, instead of a living room, instead of a dining room, I have a recording studio. I've got mm. I've got isolation areas. I've got a, a primary live room. I've got a nice control room where the dining room used to be. I installed the double pane glass between the windows so I could you know make angry faces at my musicians. <laughs> I was I was fortunate enough that the person who owned the house before had had started to dabble in recording. He'd uh, he'd built away from the original walls of the house, and we have drywall. About seven inches out from the original walls, stuffed oh, wow. with insulation to kind of uh, provide that at base level of soundproofing. That's great. So, like for me, it was easy. I was able to jump in. I was able to put about two thousand dollars worth of work into it, and uh, I was I was rip roaring and ready to go while I was still doing the band. That's great. And recording full time on the side. That's killer. My next question was going to be what makes your studio unique, but that sounds
0: pretty unique already. So, do you have anything else? <laughs>
1: I mean, I've always I've always liked my studio. I've liked the environment. Um uh, like like people who uh, go online and look at my website, kevingatesproductions.com. Mm-hmm. They always they always say, "Well, it looks like a a, a professional studio, but when we come over here, it's kind of like, you know, we're just we're just hanging out. It doesn't it doesn't have a high pressure feel. It doesn't feel like you're going into a big expensive studio where the clock is ticking and like dollar signs are just flickering everywhere. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like, "Hey, we're just going to go over to Kevin's house and we're going to make some music." It's it's not that high stress, high pressure environment that you typically get in a studio when you walk in and you just see rows and rows of rack gear. I mean, when people first enter my studio, they actually come in through the door and they, you know, they, they turn left and they see a couple of the, the plaques and awards I've, I've been fortunate enough to get. But if they were to just veer right just a little bit, I mean, they're in my kitchen. Hmm. So, and it's, it's very much not like a studio lounge kitchen. It is, it is my kitchen. My wife is, you know, in there baking cookies on her days off because hmm. she is a, she's a cereal baker. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, I, 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 I went to the website and looked at it. It's like, yes, this does look like a,
0: not someone's house.
1: And, and I, it's kind of, it's kind of incognito too. I live in a neighborhood, uh, Springfield's very much a college town. Uh-huh. So a lot of my neighbors are, are college kids coming in really, you know, good folks, but there's also a lot of, uh, turnover, with my, with my neighbors. Uh-huh. So, you know, I get to know them a little bit, but I would say probably 70% of my neighbors, the people who live around me, they they move before they get a chance to really learn what I do. <laughs> so I can only imagine how some of these people look at me. I've got my home and it's, you know, it's soundproof pretty well, so they can't, Really hear anything I could I could have a drummer in my Live room at three o'clock in the morning Hmm. And not really uh, bother anybody else Which I'm very thankful for That's awesome but I Guess the neighbors probably look at my house and just see random Band vans pull up and park there for you know A week or two at a time and then turn around And leave I don't know if they think I'm dealing drugs Or if I've got some like weird Shipping service on the side it's I just (laughs) Mm. uh, I just kind of I just kind of roll with it
0: nice Uh, (laughs) I think that That's a common thing is this like is this guy the local Drug dealer is he running a Rehab. What's going on? Here? I, I have,
1: I have actually on at least three occasions. Just had just had random young folks knock up on my door. I say young folks, I mm-hmm. mean like you know eighteen year old high school seniors come and knock on my door and be like, "Hey man, uh, you, uh, you you got any uh, 420? <laughs> just like, just kinda, they just kind of look at me and I'm like, "Uh, sorry man, that that ain't my bag. I'm a legitimate business over here." That, that, that's
0: fu- f- funny. You're betraying that that thing I was told when I was young, which is uh, record producer synonymous with guy who knows where to get you drugs at all times of the day.
1: <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> I've had I've I mean i i do not partake it's not my thing, nor I mean even if I did would I admit that on a on a on a podcast no i wouldn't <laughs> yes um but i've had I've had some interesting experiences in my home with uh folks who were intoxicated mm. uh i I actually had a, the unfortunate experience of having a band set my porch on fire once because they Whoa. were in an inebriated state
0: <laughs> oh god yeah I, A few years ago in my studio it was a band I was managing and producing uh
1: Oh, that's I, always fun.
0: I look over and they're both staring and I see a reflection on the wall and I'm like, that looks like a fire. And they're both so stoned. They're just staring at a fire inside <laughs> the uh, toaster oven. And like, I grab the firing signature and put it out. And I'm like, you fucking idiots. <laughs> so that was, uh, uh y- y- there's always something nice. Like you invite somebody into your home and into your space and it's like, oh, I'll just set fire to it. <laughs>
1: Right? I mean, I'm very fortunate. Most of my clients, and when I say most, I mean over 95%, have been very respectful. Mm. But you talk about them coming into your home, into your space. My wife is a saint. We've only been married for about six months, but we were together for 10 years before that. Mm. Uh, She actually moved in with me when I first purchased the home, and from the very beginning... This woman, she is a saint. She was sharing her bathroom with probably 300 random band dudes every year. Oh, there's man. only one, there's only one restroom. There's the one because we had to we had to take out a, uh anything else that could potentially be converted into a restroom to make room for the studio. Wow. So, we have one restroom in this old house and my wife shares it with all of my clients who like I said are mostly respectful but Yeah. That's 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 one lady amongst all those Smelly, sweaty, nasty <laughs> band dudes. Yeah, yeah,
0: I, I, I know, I know it well. Tell me about the coolest piece of gear your studio has.
1: Oh, coolest piece of gear I have is probably my PlayStation Four. <laughs> nice, well, well done. Now, well, um, done. I, don't, I mean that's a that's a pretty broad question. I mean, like I've I've got some cool toys. Like uh, a couple years ago, PV hooked me up with one of their uh, their auto tune guitars, which I was very very skeptical on, but I've actually used it a surprisingly large amount, especially for. Uh, younger bands that get really aggressive with strumming and uh, they tend to have intonation issues even on a perfectly intonated guitar. So having this uh, this instrument and I don't know if you've played with it but the uh, I don't even know about works, this is it an ever guitar? No, no, no. It, this is this it does not physically tune the strings at all. It has a, a small motherboard about the size of a credit card sitting in the in the in the body of the guitar and post pickup it runs the signal from each one of these uh the, the strings into this tuner and it merges. I don't know. I don't know how it works totally, but it merges the signal from the sound of the pickup with the, uh, the pitch detection and it will actually tune the strings in real time and it's made by Antares the same company that does you know Antares Autotune wow and i had no
0: idea this existed i must have missed this one
1: it it's uh, it's called the pt uh, the pv 8
0: 200 i'm looking at AT200. it right on the, net, in the internet now wow
1: it, it it's great it's got that great like nickelback modern rock look to it <laughs>
0: it, it 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 does look pretty uh bro rock yeah
1: bro, bro rock I, I like to call it butt rock but yes. i i use that term you know with a, with a lot of affection, <laughs> but that's that that is a cool toy, and mm-hmm. it, it, like you would think that something like that would sound incredibly harsh and incredibly digital, and it really doesn't. I mean, it's not my it's not my primary guitar that I would choose for rhythm on a rock song, but I, it, it, it's definitely got its place in music, and I'm I'm a huge proponent of technology. So, mm-hmm. whenever something comes out, and a lot of other other oh, my other contemporaries are very skeptical. They're like, "Oh, that's just not how you do it." I'm like, you know what? Let's try it. I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, amp, amp modeling in 1999 was definitely not to the point where, where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, over the last uh, 15 years or so, it's yeah, it's, it's gotten it's, up there, and now it's a completely viable tool.
0: Yeah, and I think in two to five years, we're going to see the point that no one can tell.
1: I, I really don't think so. I mean, it's already kind of hard to tell live, but I I believe in the hands of a good mixing engineer, mm-hmm. someone who can get in there and, like, tweak some of the, the, the small digital issues with uh, amp modeling. I think it's uh it's it's getting more and more difficult. No, I like I even even by my ears.
0: I, I agree, you know, ever since I found out that say anything is a real boy is all pod, I was like, well, mm-hmm. those guitars, you know, they sounded different, but it didn't ever stop my enjoyment of that record. That's one of my favorite records of all time and I was like, all right, well, that shows this is viable. It's just you know, is it the right choice for every record? Hmm, maybe not.
1: I'm so glad that I'm so glad that you brought that up because mm-hmm. that the fact that using digital instruments didn't affect your enjoyment of the record mm-hmm. that that kind of has always been my philosophy. I started off getting a lot of musicians that were always in search of that elusive four-letter word tone. And as as a guitarist mm-hmm. myself, like guitar tone was so important. But at some point in my career, I just I seamlessly crossed over. I don't I can't even pick a point in time when it happened. But I kind of started to realize, you know, good guitar tone is important, but it's more important to focus on what the tone of the entire song is going to be. So you can't ever break that down to just, you know, oh, are we using a a sample on the snare drum? Is that going to impact the listener's enjoyment of the record? Sometimes having that, you know, very consistent crack is exactly what people need Mm -hmm. to enjoy the songs as a whole. Like. One of the, uh, they call it analysis paralysis, but you can get totally lost trying to dial in like the perfect little sounds. Mm-hmm. And we have the ability to do so, but like we as engineers and producers have to kind of draw that line and learn, okay, when have we spent enough time? When is this? Okay, this is good. This is going to do what it needs to do for the song. This is going to make it great. When, when have we reached our goal?
0: Yeah, I I, I I think that's actually a really great way of looking at it.
1: I just, it's, it's so easy to get lost in the pursuit of that, you know, mm-hmm. invisible four letter word tone. You you end up spending, you know, a day and a half just getting your mic set up on a on a guitar amp, and it's like, why are we doing this? Let's let's get a mic in front of it. Let's crank it to ten, and let's go.
0: Mm-hmm. So the next question I have for you is, uh, we have a thing that we say is that there's on one side there's uh, Steve Albini who you know, doesn't get involved in the songwriting, maybe we'll tell you if it takes okay, but just we'll make the, get the tones for you. Then you have a John Feldman who fully rewrites songs for bands. Where do you see yourself on that scale most often?
1: Okay. If we were going to, if we were going to put it on a spectrum, I'd probably lean about 65% towards Feldman, but it all depends on the client. I try to, I try to be a, a musician's producer. I, I always tell my clients when they come in on day one, it's like, okay. And usually at this, at this point, we've gone through several pre-production conferences and we've kind of gotten to feel each other out. We'll do Skype uh, conferences and whatnot just to uh, get, get to know each other's personality because when you're going to do a record with a producer, that producer is becoming the nth member of the band. Mm-hmm. He's, the, he's the guy at the board, the interpreter. Every other instrument is going to be flowing through his ears and through his fingers. It's kind of important to make sure that you mesh with that person on a on a personal level. I always tell my clients... I work for you. This is your hard-earned money that you are entrusting in me to make you sound the way that you want to sound. Mm. That said, I like to think that you're coming to me because you respect my previous body of work Mm -hmm. and you respect my opinions from my experience in the industry. So I basically say, I'm going to throw out suggestions until you tell me to shut the hell up. Gotcha. And a lot of times that works really, really well. There's, you know, you're going to hit those parts. Where uh, you're gonna you're gonna be going back and forth with a client, especially if it's a section that you can feel passionately about. Uh, this this could potentially make or break the song,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I, I, I like to you know engage in a passionate debate argument, whatever you want to call it. At that point, where we'll lay it all out there on the table, and everybody kind of pitches their point of view. But in the end, the the, uh, the absolute like deal breaker would be. If they say, no, we're the paying client and this is what we want, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do my damnedest to make it sound the way they want it to sound. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like John, John Feldman, I, I love and appreciate his work, but you hear all these horror stories. Like he'll do a great record with a band. Like he did that first record with uh, Story of the Year. Yes. That ga- that gave them uh, two top 40 hits. Mm-hmm. And they were just so ready to run screaming from him after that experience because he basically lines you up. He's like, okay, who plays guitar? Not yep. anymore. I'm going to play all the guitar. You just sit there and make sure you watch what I'm doing. Mm. Uh, who plays drums? Uh, I don't know if I like your drumming style. This is my studio drummer, Lou. He's mm. going to hit some stuff. Yep. He's he's the kind of guy that's like, hey, everybody shut the hell up. We're just going to do what I say and we're going to make a shit ton of money. And you know what? It works. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't argue with his results, but I mean, it might not be the uh, – Experience everyone's looking for,
0: yeah, or the expression an artist is looking to do, yeah, for sure, yeah. What do you think you bring to records most often?
1: Impact. That's that's something that I find a lot of my clients are really lacking when they come in. They can they can make these huge, epic, sweeping, three and a half minute pop slash rock slash metal slash acoustic masterpieces, but I almost always find that when they come in, they're lacking the impact that I like to see from commercial records. Mm. If you could take 30 random kids between the ages of 14 and 18, put them in a classroom and say, okay, raise your hand when we hit the chorus. I want to make a song that regardless of genre, when that chorus hits, all of the hands in that classroom go up. I want Hmm. people that don't know about song structure, that don't know about all the little magic tricks that we use in production every day. I want them to be able to just tell when the sweeping, more epic points of the song hit. And that's what I really focus on helping my clients to achieve. And there's, of course, a number of ways to do that. It could be tweaking vocal melodies or uh, instrumentation, you know, inserting pauses, changing up drum fills, things like that. But, uh, like, you can, you can have a, a song that is, you know, your perfect intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, outro, structure. But you can make it so much more with solid transitions and just giving it that lift and impact.
0: Mm that's a great point so what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio
1: i would almost say over preparation Mm. and and that's that's kind of a weird thing and i have i have some of my contemporaries look at me and tell me i'm crazy when i say that well you know Um, what's funny on
0: this podcast is everybody says either over preparation or under preparation it's kind of like (laughs) one of those things i think it's like it's almost like uh who
1: it's that that thing of uh, who last broke your heart <laughs> mm-hmm. My 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 problem with over preparation in musicians is, well. I mean of course you want to be able you want to be a solid musician. You want to be able to play the parts that you're writing for yourself. If you can't sweet pick, you shouldn't be writing, you know, sweet picking parts for your song. It's just mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not it's not going to end well. But when you have a band that makes a, a conscious decision to go to a producer, someone who is going to help them from the beginning to the end of the process, they sit down and they write these songs to go into the studio with, and sometimes if they rehearse them too much or get too attached to certain parts, it makes it very difficult for them to let go or listen objectively when we get in the studio and we start making tweaks. Mm. Uh, a drummer, for instance, could get really, really attached to a fill that for whatever reason just doesn't work with that section of a song because, you know, let's say that the guitar is the focal point or the, uh, the vocals are the focal point. So, I mean, like, it it could be damaging at that point because even if you suggest something that could, you know, better the song, and I'm not trying to say that my opinion would be the be-all end-all, but if anybody Mm -hmm. else in the band suggests something, perhaps that one musician would not be able to listen to the new part objectively because they have the old part so ingrained in their brain. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's, there's a really fine line that you're walking between knowing the bass material when you're coming in. And going in with the openness To be able to work on that In a way that makes it The best possible end result
0: I like that That's a good way of putting it What's the biggest mistake Or smart thing you see bands do With vocals?
1: Not properly warming up Not not treating their uh, Their voice as an instrument Not hmm. Not rehearsing well I mean I think that vocalists, and I'm not a vocalist, but this is just my experience, and this is, you know, from the vocalist in my past bands that did it the way I kind of view it to be correct. You have an opportunity that no other member of the band has, and that is you can pretty much rehearse any time that you're alone. Anytime, if you're in the car for 45 minutes, just to sit up, you know, give yourself some proper posture. Do your warmups and then, you know, fire up something on the radio one, or one of your songs that you've, you've previously tracked and just, you know, sing along with it. Use your proper technique. And doing that, you know, every day or at the very least, you know, three to four times a week, you're going to be better prepared when you when you actually do step in the studio. Just because you're consistently rehearsed, you'll have more control. And it's not even like a conscious thing. Just doing it is going to subconsciously give you more control. You're, you're going to be able to think about what you want to do vocally and hit it with more ease if you rehearse I just I never understood uh, front men or women that don't want to sing and practice all the time. I mean this is this is this is allegedly what you love to do. Why wouldn't you want to sing in the car at the top of your lungs all the time? Mm-hmm. Just you know make make a slight modification to it throw your vocal warmups in there do it properly so you don't damage your vocal cords. And you're automatically putting yourself uh, a step ahead of the competition. I like that.
0: What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process?
1: Coming, coming in with an open mind. A, a lot. I've been working with uh, mostly younger. Like, I call them developmental artists mm-hmm. lately. And that's, that's kind of what I've settled into in the past couple of years. I'd been working with a lot of label projects, probably from 2010 to 2013. And the label deadlines and, and you know, the pressure from the higher-ups can, can kind of get to you a little bit. So I kind of dialed it back, and I started working with more of these mid-level, lower-tier bands that, you know, had potential. They were eager to learn, so being able to sit down and work with them. The thing I, I really like that they do, most of them, is they come in knowing... Hey, we don't know everything. We we can definitely learn things from this experience. Mm-hmm. If this guy says things, we're gonna listen to what he has to say and we're gonna hear the results, and then we can make the determination and see if we like it or not. I mean, just that kind of that kind of openness and receptiveness to new ideas, outside ideas, is probably the smartest thing. And that I mean I mean, I realize that makes me sound like they, they have to come in and listen to me. That's what makes them smart. Ah. That's, that, that's not the case at yeah, all because no. I've definitely had some really stupid ideas. and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell my clients that right off the bat. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to throw out a lot of ideas, and a good chunk of them are going to be idiotic. You're going to look at me like I am completely crazy. But you know what? Humor me. Let's try it. Maybe, it, maybe it's awesome. That's how, you, uh, that's how you get into experimentation, and that's how you create new things. But just th- that receptiveness is probably the, the biggest thing that a a young band could do to impress me is just come in and be willing to, to work and listen and and play with things rather than being like, Nope, this is how we do it. This is how we sound.
0: Yeah. I I mean, there's a funny thing that, um, you know, if you think of it this way, most of collaboration is brainstorming and and the guy who invented the concept of brainstorming, uh, Alex Osborne from BBDO, his whole thing was that you have to, One, not be critical, and then two, try people's ideas and flesh them out, even if you think they're stupid. That's how brainstorming works well, is because you see what somebody else did, and then you go, huh, well, that did open my mind to that, and now we should do this instead, and Mm -hmm. that's just been so lost in the world of music, because, I mean, sometimes it's because of ticking clocks, and then sometimes it's just also that people's egos get bruised too easily.
1: They they do, and we talk about, I mean, we talk about egos being bruised. I, I think if you're trying to make your way in an industry that is based on uh, creativity, mm-hmm. something whether it's whether it's music or videography, you have to have thick skin and you, you have to learn from criticism. Mm-hmm. If you can't if you can't take criticism and apply it to make yourself better, then this isn't the right business for you. I'm, you're you're never going to grow. You're going to stay in your little box, mm-hmm. and you're going to end up alienating yourself from the world just because you're you're too sensitive.
0: Uh, I, I could not agree more What happens when you and a band disagree about something Since we're on that subject
1: I'm not going to say that it doesn't get heated from time to time But I mean, you know, when, when you have a, a group of people in a room That care about something dearly Because, I mean, when, when you when you work with a producer you You accept that everyone in that room All of our names are collectively going on that end product We all have something invested in it so everybody wants it to turn out as good as it possibly can. Things will get heated. I'm not. I'm not going to say that you know, like profanity gets thrown around, but you know, you'll 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 get heated and you'll be passionately debating your point of view. And whatever happens when it comes to a resolution that everyone can agree upon, we just stop, take a couple breaths. Sometimes we step outside. I always try to make sure I've got a, probably about thirty percent more time than I think I would ever need on a project when mm. I when I kind of kind of roughly block out dates. Because you want to, you want to have time to where if things get heated or if you hit a brick wall, you can step outside. Maybe it's like, hey, let's go out to the back porch and uh, you know, let's do some grilling. Let's let's barbecue. Mm. Or hey, there, there's a movie theater five minutes from my house. Let's go see that new movie that just came out. I mean that that happened. Uh, that happened last month. I had abandoned in the studio and you know we were we were debating whether or not we were going to keep a section that could have been labeled as a a, a breakdown and this was definitely not a i'm using finger quotes breakdown band and the only one that really wanted to hold on to it was the drummer and i was like you know what let's uh let's let's duck out of here there's that hardcore henry action movie playing up at the at the corner mm-hmm. theater let's just go watch some mindless mindless violence and that's what we did and we came back and you know kind of picked it up everyone just kind of nodded and you're like you know what yeah that section's stupid. Let's cut it. We can do something better. It just—it was a good way to blow off steam and get right back to the process.
0: I, I think that that's a really, really good point about, especially about the planning. Uh, I think that so many people are trying to jam as many people into the studio as possible at all times, and uh, I think that that's a really interesting outlook on it that I've not heard before.
1: It's bad enough that we're trying to take something artistic like music and. Package it and process it as much as we are if you try to if you try to like squeeze it into the confines of a, a workflow it's going to backfire you've you've got to you've got to keep that room so the process can still be organic I, I like that
0: so let's go through some modern production tools and how you feel about them. Uh, we kind of touched on it already uh amp simulators do they have a role in your productions of course
1: not n- not not always i mean i'm I'm not so Tied to the technology, I mean, but you know, I've got I've got all of all of the amp sims that you know, you've got your Recab, and I've got a Fractal Audio Axe Effects that I that I love. But I'm also not gonna look at look at somebody who's sitting there. I had a guy come in uh, with an actual 64 Fender Twin Pro Amp, and I was like, that is beautiful. Let's you know, for, for God's sake, let's mic that up. Mm. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say no to to something that's awesome, that that's that awesome. But you know, I'll also have younger bands come in that. I had, a, I had a band come in there. The guitarist absolutely loved his Crate Blue Voodoo. And I was like, um, I think we can do something a little better than that. And I, I brought him over. I'm like, this is the Fractal. This is technology. Okay, we're going to do You want this amp, this amp, this amp? And once I showed him that it, it didn't sound like a, like a little Radio Shack toy or like the, the guitar tone on GarageBand, he was a lot more open to it. But it's, I mean, there, there's, there's always going to be pros and cons to technology or tradition. It's just you. You go with what is going to lend itself best to the project. If it's going to be inhibitive, you don't want to. You don't want to go to the, the traditional route. You're gonna to want. To, you to, gonna to want to go with what's a little easier because you're gonna get where you need to go faster. But just because you can, you know, get that. I get that fairly ideal tone in, you know, a minute and a half doesn't mean that you should, there are always going to be other options that you can play with.
0: I, I think that that is a very, very refreshing outlook on, on this stuff. So I imagine that you feel the same way about sampled and mini drums in your productions.
1: Yes. I mean, I've, uh, I like you, I work with a lot of modern production. I do a lot of like pop rock and electro and whatnot. And it's like, those are just genres that modern production has, has kind of, uh, the the ears of the of the consumers have been altered over time by introducing samples into production more and more and more over the last twenty five thirty years. I believe I, I read an article about how Steely Dan was one of the first bands to actually use drum replacement in the studio. Mm. They actually created a, a device that would actually play back tape samples mm. in in time in time with the song for the choruses of their songs. And I was well, like,
0: "That's was it tape?" Or I, I thought what it was is that they got that thing with that they used with the Akai sampler. Uh, I, can't,
1: I can't. I can't recall. I, I I thought I heard a story about someone creating a tape playback device as early as like seventy nine. Wow. I might, I might I might be mistaken. I know that people were going crazy with uh, drum replacement in the eighties because they mm-hmm. had digital samplers for the first time ever. You know, you could just sit there and record to tape, hitting a button on a on a drum pad, playing along with it and syncing it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But consumers, their their ears are, are are kind of expecting that level of perfection in some genres of music. Not all, but some. Mm-hmm. Like if I have a if if I was to do another Never Shout record, like no, we're not using samples. Mm-hmm. Like we're gonna we're gonna take the time. We're gonna mic up the kit. We're gonna make it sound good because that is very open, expressive, like acoustic driven rock. It's kind of is kind of that, and it just it. I mean, even even at its heaviest, it's it's very '70s-ish and, and classic rock, and there's really not a place for samples in that kind of production. But then, if I have a band in that, you know, borderline metal, like at that a data remember feel, because I, I work with a, a wide variety of genres, and I really enjoy that. I'm mostly known for the acoustic pop and the electro pop for the bands like Never Shout Never and the Ready Set mm-hmm. and uh, Plug Plug In Stereo, Trevor Doll. But I, I work with just about any genre that I can get my hands on because if I work with any one thing too long, I'm going to get really bored. Mm-hmm. And it's, so you just, you kind of, you kind of have to. You play to the strengths of the song and the style. I mean, don't box yourself in and say, I'm only going to use sample drums. There are some tracks that the bands will come in here. And even if we've got a drummer, we will program. We'll, we'll bust out, you know, Stephen Slate drummer and then some, some other samples that I've made. And we'll program the drums from scratch because that's what the production calls for. Mm. And then there's some tracks where, you know, we'll throw a drummer in a room with brushes and be like, okay, let's make this really jazzy and really dynamic. That you can't replicate that with samples. Not, not yet anyway. The technology for that just isn't there.
0: I like that. How about pitch correction?
1: <sighs> pitch correction. This is uh this this is the hot button topic and mm-hmm. it has been for the last what 20 years? Yeah,
0: um, 10 15 for sure.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I have pitch correction. Mm-hmm. I use it. I I'm not a fan of I'm using finger quotes auto tune unless you're using it as a a creative tool. But pitch correction, manual pitch quantization, I I'm I'm kind of for it and it's I I don't look at it so much as a tool that will make a bad singer into a good singer, but it can make a good singer have a great take. And it's mostly a time-saving thing. I mean, there's a reason that back in the 70s, a band would book, you know, six to eight months to do an, an album, and we can knock out an album now in 30 days. Like, we have that ability to get a really solid take, and we can be like, oh, I love the character all through that. You were just a little sharp on that one note. F it, just snag it and pull that one note down, boom. Now that's a great take. It's more important to, it's more important today to capture character. Mm-hmm than it is necessarily the cleanest pitch. And I kind, of, I kind of appreciate that about pitch correction is because we can focus on the character of a vocal take because character is what sells people on a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell my vocalist before they get in the booth for the first time, I'm going to be like, okay, when you're singing in the studio, it's not like singing live. It's almost like you're performing in a radio drama. You have to give it that little bit of extra oomph. People have to be able to close their eyes and imagine you in a booth with your fist clenched, pouring your soul into the microphone. And in a lot of cases with modern music, it doesn't really matter what these people are singing about as long as people can buy into what they're singing about. So I tell them, I'm like, it's, it's. Uh, let, let's say you're singing about how much you love grilled cheese sandwiches. It doesn't matter how, I'm using finger quotes again, cheesy that might sound. Mm. If you ma- If you make me believe that you really love it, then I'm going to buy into it. And if you're a little bit sharp because you're getting so passionate about your love for grilled cheese sandwiches, screw it. We'll tweak it a little bit. We'll make it sound good. That's, I mean, but there there are some people that just go completely ballistic when you mention the idea of pitch correction. No, I want this to be real. I don't. I don't think using a tool makes something less real. I think it just it's it's a means to get to the the end that you want.
0: Uh, I, I I like that outlook. Can you tell me some of your favorite soft sense?
1: I am a huge fan. Uh, I, I'm a, a Cubase guy, Steinberg guy. Mm-hmm. I have been for a long time. I really, really, really like Retrolog 2. It's one of the ones that's built in. I mean, I, I play with everything. I've, I I love Reason. I love Massive. But lately, just this built-in synth that came with Cubase Retrolog. It's incredibly versatile. It's easy to use. And when they went from version 1.5 to two, they opened up a lot of uh, just a lot of new options with uh, layering and uh, ordering uh, post effects, delays, and and noise filters and whatnot. It's it's uh, it's one of those plugins that's re- it's really quick and easy to get a sound that works for the song. And then when you go back in and you're mixing, you can add additional character to a synth track. I, I have th- that is the first time that we've had one that I have not heard of. But
0: I guess it's because it comes with Cubase, and I have not used Cubase since the '90s. So. Um. <laughs>
1: Uh, do, you, a, a, do you a lot of a lot of people always look at me weird when I say Cubase, and you know it seems pretty it come, popular it, now. It it is like I actually it, it started uh, The studio where I did my internship. The producer was using Nuendo, mm-hmm. which is which a uh, the only real difference between bit and nuendo that I can detect is that it 's got better functionality for Cubase is just is just purely for music production, but it doesn't matter if you're using Logic or Reaper or Cubase or Pro Tools, or I mean, are there are people out there still using Sonar. It doesn't it doesn't really matter or uh, Ableton. Mm-hmm. All of these DAWs essentially do the same thing. They're recording audio at a set bit and sample rate. It just comes down to the interface that's going to be comfortable for you to create. And that's that's what we're trying to do when it comes to tools like that. No one DAW is going to sound better or worse than another. It's It's something that helps you create and basically eliminates as much of that wall between you and the technology as possible
0: always go back to that thing uh alan Dow just says is, uh, it's just getting proficient with a a format you pick a format you get to work you get proficient with it
1: exactly and it's it's i mean if you look across to, across the spectrum of producers now everybody's using everything there's so many guys out there running logic pro x and i'm i'm completely blanking on them right now but uh Guys like Ian Kirkpatrick and Joey Sturgis are using Cubase, and they're mm-hmm. making you know top forty records. It's just, it's like you said, it's proficiency. It's it's just another tool in your arsenal. A- agreed. Do you master your own records? From time to time, it. Uh, I, I openly admit that I am not the best mastering engineer in the world. That said, I'm, I'm I like to think I'm pretty pretty proficient with the with the techniques and and the basis of it. And there, there's some records where, especially more aggressive modern stuff, where It almost lends itself well if you're mastering while you're mixing because you really have to hear how things are going to work with things like bus compressors and limiters. There's a couple of guys I really, really love for most of my project mastering, though. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Troy Glessner from Spectre Studios in uh, Washington. Troy's a great guy. He's done work with with Under Oath and a bunch of other really, really cool bands. Uh, There's another guy, another producer who actually does quite a bit of mastering for me, and that's Kevin Newland, Newland Recordings. He's, he's another great guy, very, very much on the modern style of things, but he's one of those guys that if I'm like sitting there and I'm just like, man, like it sounds good, but I feel like there's something about this entire thing that just doesn't, it's, it's not glued together for me. And I'm just listening back to the track. I can usually send it to them and whatever it was missing, whatever, whatever bus compression to tie it together or whatever, it's slight boost in some frequency that for whatever reason I wasn't picking up. Those are usually the guys that do it for me. And, uh. They're both incredibly affordable. I wish more young bands knew how much professional grade mastering could do for your product because it really is. It's everything, it's nothing, and it's the last step before your record goes, you know, commercial. So it's like, if you if you if you work it into the budget, it's totally worth it. But I have a lot of clients that just don't don't work mastering into the budget and for whatever reason. I'm not gonna let their record go out there unmastered, so I'll master it or like I said, the genre calls for mastering to kind of be done at the same time as mixing.
0: Yes. So uh, how long do you like to usually take to record a song, and then how long does it usually take for you to mix a song in the usual case scenario?
1: The usual workflow is, uh, I I usually tell bands, you're going to want to set aside at least two days per full radio production single that we're going to work on. That means with all the bells and whistles, we're going to spend at least two full eight-hour days. And that's that's usually a, a... that's, like i mean if we, if we got down to the 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 nitty gritty of it, I'm fairly confident that with ninety percent of my clients we could knock something out in twelve to fourteen hours and be pretty proud of it, but being able to set up two two days, give yourself time to stop and take a breather in between day one of production into day two that, it, it goes back to that like I said I like to work in more time to a session than I really think that is necessary because it, you're gonna you're gonna eliminate if you finish early you finish early i mean you know go out to dinner have a few drinks, but uh Having that extra time buffer built in in case something goes wrong just keeps the stress levels low. You don't feel that time crunch as much. My normal uh, workflow, because there will be times when I have bands in day after day after day after day. I'll do one session and then I'll have another session come in the next day. I'm usually booking myself about a week to a week and a half off every four weeks to really get down to mixing. So I'll I'll do a bunch of projects and then I'll be able to stop and you know work on other stuff, clear my head from that first project, and then you know three four weeks later, bring it up, sit down and mix it. When it actually comes to mixing, I, I think uh, I think I'm I'm fairly proficient at mixing. If I've given myself uh, some time off and I approach it with fresh ears, most of my productions I can finish a mix in under eight to ten hours. And I feel I feel pretty confident in that level of work. There, I mean, you know, there's there's going to be some tracks where you just sit down and you knock it out and, you know, like three and a half. It's just like, wow, this is a really simple production. Everything came together. And there's going to be some where you're doing so much micro-automation that you, you swear you're spending two or three full days on a track. And it's just not where you want it to be. But eight to ten hours is, is the norm. And I'll usually get to that about three to four weeks after the clients have left the studio.
0: Nice. So then... What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer?
1: I'm gonna go with uh, Mr. Jeffrey Smith. He is a, he's a producer engineer here in Springfield. He runs a studio called the Studio 2100. He was the guy I did my internship with, and this is the man that, even though his uh, his specialty lies in a genre that I don't typically typically deal with, he does a lot of contemporary Christian and bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Watching him work with his clients to coax the best performances out of them, especially vocally. They say when they say when the red light goes on, everyone just goes stupid. Uh, that's the the most seasoned musicians can just completely clam up when they know that their their performance is being captured. I had a three-month internship where I just got to watch him work with these vocalists. Whenever his finger would hit that talk back button, the tone of his voice, the way that he was highlighting certain aspects of the performance, what that what they needed more of, what they needed to tone down. Um, it's really hard to put into words and it's something that you kind of only master through experience, but I think that's such a huge part of music production is being able to talk to your clients and coax the best performance out Mm -hmm. of them. It's, it's, it's almost like, uh, you're a psychiatrist. You are, you are getting inside their head, trying to like, just tell by the tonality of their voice, whether they're a little shaky or they're hyperventilating a little bit. Are they nervous? Are they stressed about this? Are they getting angry with themselves? When is it a good time to stop and take a break? When do you need to push them a little harder because they're about to reach a breakthrough? That was probably the biggest thing that I learned from another producer. And I, I like, I constantly go back in my head and, and relive watching him with just about every record I do. Mm. and i i still I still visit with Jeff, and we've had some good conversations. He's still running his studio on the other side of town. I'm still running my studio here in town. Our clientele are kind of separate, but anytime i I bump into him or I get a chance, you know I'm always just like, hey man, like you know I still remember that you taught me this, and mm. he just you know that always gives him, gives him a big old smile
0: that's awesome. Tell me one of the best
1: moments you've had in the studio i I don't think i could I could narrow it down to one of the best moments, but periodically at least several times a week. I will just have one of those moments where I'm listening back to a project with the, with the clients in the room and everyone's kind of bobbing their head and, and we're really grooving on what we've created. And I'll just remember, oh yeah, I, I get to do this for a living. This is my job. Mm-hmm. This is how I make my income. This is how I pay my bills is getting to wake up every day. And it, it's, it's especially rewarding for me because my morning commute is 16 steps. My, my, my be- me and my wife's bedroom is right at the top of the stairs. We walk 16 steps downstairs, turn right, boom, I'm in my studio. It's, I mean, there's just these moments every week where I'm like, I'm living the dream. And I mean, there, there's always a, a counterside to that, which is, uh, you know, they say if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's complete and total bullshit. There are definitely days where I feel like I'm working, but the, the limited number of them. And the fact that I, I do still routinely get so much joy out of what I do on a day-to-day basis is very rewarding. And I mean, if I could pick every single one of those moments where I just like, I'm, I, I'm I'm probably sitting on the side of the room while everybody else is listening attentively to the song, just smiling bigger than any one man should. That's very cool. How about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it? Oh, uh, worst moments. I was working with a band from St. Louis, uh, younger younger band, and... This was after I had done my second major studio renovation, and that's when I got my current mixing board in there. I currently have a, a Task DM4800. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my other gear upgrades, it doesn't get used as much. I mean, I'm able to use it for recording automation and whatnot, but as as production goes more and more in the box the need for a giant mixer is is less and less but mm-hmm. that was my first like real full production board that was my first like time that I actually got to sit behind my own console that had a specific pre and 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 you know it was set up and linked with my computer and on the second day of our session in the middle of a drum take the input source just stopped hmm and i can't remember what card or what what happened on the inside of that board but it burned out it was an easy fix but that moment was the first moment that I'd ever actually had a client in the studio and had a gear fail a gear a gear failure that was so intense mm. that we had to actually stop and reschedule a session and I felt terrible I was sitting here offering like session discounts and whatnot, and they're like no man no no it's cool you know we'll we'll just reschedule we'll come back and I uh, I was able to take it to a an authorized service center locally that they were able to fix it in you know like a week but it was it was just. I felt so terrible. I felt like I had failed as a business owner. Hmm. I felt like I failed. I failed as a producer because I didn't immediately know my gear and what was going wrong with it because it was a newer piece of gear. Totally. And even though I'd taken, I'd taken some time to get like really. I I I I became well versed in the the functions and features of it, and you know how to patch things. I wanted to learn how to troubleshoot this piece of equipment, and I felt like I was confident and comfortable enough to actually do a session. And then that happened. It was it was terrible. Like you just you feel like a failure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I I mean I, I think it happens to everybody, and then that's when you learn. Like I'm good. I'm at the mercy of this equipment until I learn how to fix every aspect of it and have a contingency plan for any failures.
1: Exactly. That's that's one of the reasons why. Uh, I don't use, I, I I use all PC for my for my well, work computers, and mm. a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, why don't you use Mac? Mac is clearly the standard. And I'm like, yes, Mac is the standard. But uh, when I was in college, I spent some time as a, one of the computer lab techs on campus, and I, I knew a bunch of super computer nerds that that taught me a lot of the ins and outs of building your own custom PCs, and I always try to stay up to date on the new technology when it comes to uh studio computers if anything goes wrong in that computer i know how to fix it and i know which retailer i need to go to in town to get the proper parts if uh it's an issue with a cooling fan if it's a, you know something's wrong with the motherboard if uh i mean and i i feel like because of this that it's well that's why i'm fortunate to not have ever lost sessions i'm i'm not gonna what here mm. Because I, I have a multi-tiered backup system, and I understand, you know, the nature of each one of the hard drives that I'm operating off of. I've I pride myself on on knowing my computer inside and out. And if something goes wrong, it's never more than fifteen minutes before we're back up and running. It's, it's pr- pr- pretty good. Um, I, I am knocking on wood as hard as I can right now, but
0: yeah, I know. I, I, I this comes up a lot, and I have to I have to reach for my uh, nearest monitor and uh, do the same. So, what's the musical bane of your existence?
1: The musical bane of my existence? <laughs> I would like to do something, something simple and just say bass players. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm going to throw it out there. Zillbells. I work. I, I don't even know what those are. The Zill You never, you never messed with one of those. No, I, I, I,
0: I, I have a feeling I'm getting lucky and staying. Not these are something that aren't prominent in Brooklyn, apparently. So
1: more the more aggressive drummers that like to do a lot of bell work in their songs, mm-hmm. instead of just getting a really solid ride that you know it's got that great blend of a good washed out crash. Like my, my favorite ride symbol of all time is the uh, the Zildjian A Custom Sweet Ride. I just I love the tone of that symbol. And it's really hard. And, to,
0: that's funny. you and I are on totally different things. That, that's my least favorite symbol. Oh, I,
1: lo- I love that symbol. It also, <laughs> it, also it also depends how you're miking it. Like I I wouldn't want to put a, like I wouldn't want to directly mic that symbol. But I think it also stems from uh, my uh, my old drummer Tommy Erding in the day away back in you know 2006 had a sweet ride that he would he would hit on almost all of our choruses and it just it sounded so good when I recorded our demos. I just I I kind of like I guess I custom tailored my approach. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's also like some people like the really bright, some people like the really dark.
0: That's in the middle, and to me, I'm just like, well, I want one or the other. I want an extreme.
1: That's 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 actually that's a good point. I can I can I can completely agree with that. It's uh, see, I like it because it's right in the middle, and you you mm. want something a little more on on either end of the spectrum depending on the production. See, for me, it's yep. just a good safe go to. It's it's a symbol that it's very hard to for me to to hear it sounding bad in a mix. But gotcha. but these drummers and these Zillbells, bells, a little um, imagine a little you know six or eight inch disc that you would just you know put on a stand and when you hit it it just it, oh, it makes this, I do know this yeah that annoying little pingy sound and I will have so many drummers that think that it's acceptable to use that in the middle of a fill so <laughs> they'll come in there and they'll they'll do a double kick roll or something and then ting and I'm just like ugh. It's just the most piercing, obnoxious sound. Ugh. I don't know if it's the single bane of my existence, but it's... But it's it's one of them. It's it's <laughs> it's the one that, that sticks out in my mind, because whenever I see a drummer pulling that out of a cymbal bag, I'm just like, oh, fuck, here we go again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny. Let's get into your taste of music a, a little bit. What's a perfect record someone else made, and what about it makes it perfect?
1: A lot of people... Uh, will question me for this because they are by no means my favorite band. I don't dislike them. In 1999 a record came out by the band Lit called A Place mm-hmm. in the Sun. And D- Dave, Dave Jordan if I recall? Uh it was Don Gilmore.
0: Oh it was Don Gilmore, you're Don right. Don Gilmore yes.
1: and for like I didn't understand it at that point, but like the the more time has separated since I first heard that record, it really came at a point in time Where producers in general, and Don specifically, were kind of hovering between the analog sound of the 80s and early 90s and the digital sound that was quickly sweeping in. And Mm. as a pop rock slash rock record, that... The sound of that record was so warm and round, but the drums were punchy and the vocals were crisp. And like I said, they're not my favorite band by any means. Um, I wouldn't even put them in. No, that, there's no
0: doubt. That's a great record. It's
1: just that is that is to me the quintessential like pop rock record. Like if you imagine like four guys on stage, you know, like a guitarist, a drummer, a bassist and, a, and a, just a dedicated frontman. That was just such a great capturing of that simple essence of like pop slash pop rock. And that record, like I will, I will go back to that just for like mixing reference on 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 anything else that's remotely similar. Because I th- there's just something about that the sound of that record, man, it does it for me. No, there's no
0: doubt. Don Gilmore has, uh, especially during that era, had something everybody else did not
1: have. That that um, that brings me, uh, like, I mean, I, I would put him in my top three favorite producers of all time. Easily. That's great,
0: because that's the next question.
1: <laughs> Don, Don Gilmore was a huge inspiration. Before I even knew who Don Gilmore was, before I was even, even paying attention to the name of producers on, on liner notes, one of my favorite bands of all time is a little pop-punk band from, from SoCal called Eve Six. I absolutely mm-hmm. love Eve Six, and Don has done three out of their four records. And uh, probably another one of my top five favorite records of all time was Horoscope. That he did in uh, ninety nine to two thousand, it was it was pretty much right after that lit record. He was just getting such cool sounds because with uh, with a place in the sun, it was very it was a very simple, broad pop rock sound, very round. With horoscope, he crossed over and he introduced a little more of that electronica into like a modern rock sound. And then uh, very shortly after that, he had Lincoln Park's Hybrid Theory, followed by Meteora, which. Basically kind of reinvented how electronic music would, me- would mesh with rock. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there wasn't a single person I, I knew that didn't have that record. Hybrid uh, theory. I, I would agree. That, that, that record was everywhere. And then I believe Meteora, the, the follow-up, sold even more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I think uh, I, I might be mistaken, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that Meteora has sold something like 16 million copies. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous what he, what he did with those records. So Don Gilmore is going to be up there. Another guy I really look up to is Butch Vig. Butch Vig, I mean, he who hasn't he worked with? He's worked with everybody from you know, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Garbage, Foo Fighter. He he worked with Never Shout Never, which it was really cool because uh, I worked with Chris early in his career, and then he got to go do a record with one of my idols. That was kind of a real like, oh, I, it just it, it filled me with such joy to know that I'd done something to kind of pass him off to, onto onto hmm. one of my idols. Yeah, that's always rad. And he uh, Don, or, uh Butch Vig. He he managed to do some of the best production work of the '90s while he was playing drums for his own band that was you know garbage that went on to sell more than 16 million copies of their records. So I mean that's that's the dream right there. You're the drummer in a in a you know world touring rock band and you're you're working with some of the best bands of the decade.
0: And, and you were, you, uh, you were actually sh- short. Uh, the Meteora sold 20 million copies, it, but did sell more than Hybrid Theory.
1: Double. So so two times Diamond. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's that's world
0: worldwide sales, that, is, yeah. that
1: is that's oh that's just ridiculous to think of i mean that's 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 on a level with like alanis morissette's jagged little pill i mean like one of that's, those uh, I, I actually think that's more than jagged little pill that's oh that's ridiculous that's that's ra- random random thought right here i work with a surprisingly yeah. large number of young female rockers that mm-hmm. don't know who Alanis morissette is so i try to make sure that if they wow. leave if they leave my studio they're going to know who alonis is because i'm i'm a child of the 90s i was going to high school in the 90s i knew who Alanis mm-hmm. morissette was everybody else should too <laughs> <laughs> that's funny whereas for producers that record's often a bad word
0: because that's the adat record
1: yes oh <laughs> well, i mean the, I, I, the production of that record was all over the place uh mm-hmm. they uh her her vocals on the on the final record were the, were from the demos that they cut in his basement. Oh, what's his name? Uh-huh. Um, Glenn Glenn
0: Glenn Ballard and Jimmy Boyle. I I I I, I used to date Jimmy Boyle's uh, ex wife, so I, I know so many stories from this uh, record. Oh. It's really ridiculous.
1: <laughs> that see that we we should talk about that sometimes. I've got some questions. <laughs> yes <laughs> happy to help my the last of the three I'd have to put in there i I was I was making notes on this last night and I was going back and forth trying to decide who I would put higher and uh, so I'm actually gonna throw out two names here okay. David Bendith and Jerry Finn
0: Gotcha well I think yeah, I think Jerry Finn's one of my I was gonna sure. I was gonna
1: say I think I have to give it to Finn because while David Bendith has has done some iconic records and and above all else he makes. I, I talked earlier about records that have impact. David Bendith mm-hmm. records have impact. I mean, there's there's no way around it. But Jerry Finn created the SoCal pop punk sound. And then he also, the, his work with like Morrissey, uh, AFI's mm-hmm. December Underground is a fantastic mm-hmm. record. He was so versatile. And I mean, the, he passed away so young. You, you've got to, I've got to give the edge to Jerry Finn. So Don Gilmore, Butch Vig, Jerry Finn, that's going to be my final answer. Nice.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about five of your favorite records in your musical development. Oh,
1: five favorite records in musical development. I'm going to start with uh Huey Lewis and the News, Sports. Dude, I uh, I am right there with you. That is a fantastic record that represents just about everything wonderful about 80s music for me. Me and my wife are actually going to go see uh Mr. Huey Lewis performing about 45 minutes from here on June 15th. I'm pretty psyched. I've got nice. I've got third row tickets. <laughs> So I, I, I hear he still brings it, so I'm going to throw that out there. Nice. I mean, but yeah, the complexity
0: and how, you know, like uh, when people often talk about like how much you can fit inside a record, those records are like a crazy testament to how much you can fit inside a song.
1: Oh, it's it's amazing. And that record in particular, just from front to back, is is perfect. There are so many great songs, the horn arrangements, the guitar work. I mean, well, they would be in my top five. My top five favorite artists anyway, Huey Lewis in the news. But just, I mean, every, everything that you you would want to see in like just a big party band. That's how I, that's how I look at them. They're a party band. You can't you mm-hmm. can't not want to dance to that. And I'm I'm horribly white, so I mean, I, I feel sorry. For, <laughs> I feel sorry for everyone around me when I when I do go to a Huey Lewis concert. But the 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 the, the ultimate yacht rock party band. There we go. Them. Uh, actually, I, I guess the the ultimate like eighties show for me like from 80s party rock would be huey lewis in the news with the b-52s like that would be a concert <laughs> nice other records i have to throw up there on the top five i'm gonna put a uh, smashing pumpkin Siamese dream i'm a big pumpkin nice. pumpkin head eve six's horoscope is is definitely up there i talked about that one earlier from a production standpoint but also because you know i was i was a child of the 90s i'm gonna go with blink 182 take off your pants and jacket Nice that, that one, and a newer one, and this has gotten a little more awkward recently because I've had an opportunity to do a little bit of work with Will. He did some some guest work on a on a on some work on a, a project I did with a Saint Louis band, but Will Pugh's uh, Cartel Chroma that would that mm-hmm. would pro- great record. That was a fantastic record, and basically was just where where I talk about lit a place in the sun being like that quintessential '90s pop rock record. Cartel's Chroma just kind of took that into a new decade. These two bands are completely unrelated, but if I had to like just pick one record that kind of defined that time period for me. And plus, uh, Chroma came out when my own band was was starting to get a little bit of traction. So mm-hmm. I, I, I've already talked about it with Will. Like I said, it gets awkward because you you end up meeting your, finger quote, idols. Like being able to talk to him about the creation of that record and what they were going for, and then being able to tell him, hey, just so you know, like you guys were off doing your own thing, but you really inspired me and my friends to... To Kind of take that step further into the music industry, and that's kind of one of the reasons why i, I got into production was because of that band so nice I mean Car- yeah, Car- it's a great Car- record. Great. they they the uh, last year they did the tenth anniversary tour and where they played mm-hmm. that record front to back phenomenal show phenomenal show I mean still great band, great guys
0: yeah, we had will on the podcast a while back and talked a bit about the, the that record, so it was very cool
1: that was also that was also the uh the record that introduced me to the uh, production stylings of z k productions. Oh, yeah. Zach Odom and great. Kenneth Mount, great, great guys. I um, haven't really gotten to talk to them as much as I, I would like. I would love to pick their brains sometime because they've done some really cool stuff. Agreed. How about your
0: favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about
1: it? A lot of people that I know personally in my circles are kind of down on this, but I'm going to go with Fallout Boys, American Beauty, American Psycho. Wow. A lot of, a lot of people that liked FOB back in the day hate what they've become i am incredibly inspired by it they've managed to keep themselves relevant for more than a decade and when you listen to that record a pr- like production wise it sounds fantastic uh J.R. rodham did a lot of production work on that which was kind of weird because he's mm-hmm. he's mostly known for his like jason derulo and and, and work mm-hmm. like that lady gaga yeah, yeah. so it was kind of cool to hear him do something a little more rocking but i mean that that album produced uh centuries which was mm-hmm. Fall Out Boy's first top 10 hit in what 7 or 8 years. It also I, I believe it went 4 times platinum that single. I mean, wow, but, I did not know that. That's crazy. If you listen if you listen to that record and then compare it with From Under the Cork Tree, they do not sound like the same band. But
0: Yes, yeah, not at all. If
1: you have to you have to witness the entire evolution. I just I think it's fantastic that they were able to go back into the studio and continually reinvent themselves and and you know, complete this evolution from where they were to where they are. Not everybody agrees with it, but the fact that they're still you know making top ten singles show that shows that they're still culturally relevant.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always say the testament to them was um, I heard some of those songs three times before I knew it was Fall Out Boy, and this <laughs> is a band I've listened to a lot in my life, and I'm like. Oh, I don't know who this band is, but yeah, I'm not really into the song too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm on that side of I'm, I'm not that into that record, but it is. I, I give respect to any band who can reinvent themselves that successfully. That somebody who's listened to their records hundreds mm-hmm. of times is like I, I have no idea who this is. And it's
1: it's, it's definitely not my favorite Fallout Boy record, but like I have to I have to give them props because that that record came out last year and just I mean it's it's mind blowing how much they've changed, but the the fact that they're still having commercial success. I mean, at, at this point you're, you're, you have to wonder because of the time that's elapsed and because of the overall sound that they're getting, it, I don't think that a lot of their success nowadays is necessarily their fans from a decade ago. I, I, feel, yes, I, agree. I feel like a lot of those fans like myself included, the ones that grew up with a uh, cork tree and, uh, uh, take this to your grave which is one of the, mm-hmm. one of the best little underground pop punk records ever every song on that record is is amazing but they uh they they've managed to keep themselves cultur- culturally relevant and they've managed to inspire a whole new generation of fans to like them for a completely different reason than what the original fans liked them for so you, i mean you've got you've got to you've got to just sit back and look and go bravo i mean <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Anybody? I mean, we're we're living in a day and age where an artist is lucky if they get one release out on a major label before they just fizzle into obscurity. And the well, yeah, if they're if they're a rock band, yeah, yes. yes, definitely. I mean, rock is. Uh, I mean, are there are, are there any great rock bands left there besides like the Foo Fighters that are still like uh, still like in uh, the uh, mainstream? Uh,
0: I will argue the 1975 is the is the band doing that right
1: now. See, I I can't really consider them a rock band. They're, I mean, they're they're, no, a fantastic, I, I totally they're a fantastic. They're fantastic band, but I don't I don't feel like that rock like the 1975, which uh, weird, I think it's weird because of the 1975. They they take me back. I would. I would I would put them in that same category as like Huey Lewis in the News with like that that eighties that eighties pop groove rock going.
0: So so I think there's like an interesting thing like so you know how like on all the award shows, uh, rock records like like everything that wins best rock record is actually now about a rock attitude and not about a sound like you get Muse winning with Madness yeah. that has you know a guitar solo and it's all synthesizers and drum machines and you know cut up pro tools or you get lord winning when there's one song with a guitar on it and the whole record
1: and the, re- the um, rest is just I all think, like ambient drum samples with lots and lots of reverb
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. and like I, I think that that's the thing is is now what because we've reached the you know I mean, as far as genres go, rock has lasted a lot longer than, than things, but it's just that this is what it's evolved to, is rock is no longer about just four guys playing guitar anymore. I think it's much more about the attitude of rock compared to the attitude of EDM and how it's consumed. 1975 goes up, plays instruments on stage and gives you a rock concert, whereas Diplo and Skrillex give you an EDM concert.
1: I can okay you' you're you're, you're winning you're winning me over with that argument I can, I can. <laughs> nice they, I mean okay bottom, bottom line nineteen seventy five they're great mm. and mm. and this is coming from a guy there there will be periods in my uh my production career where I disappear from the face of the earth for several months just because I get so bogged down in work, and the only music that I'm really listening to is what i'm working on in the studio by the time we mm-hmm. by the time we finished uh, a long day of production and i'm sure you can probably relate the last thing you want to do is sit down and listen to somebody else's record because I, one one it's gonna relate. it's gonna push you past that point of burnout that you've already hit and two mm-hmm. it's gonna start making you question what you're doing on your on the the work that you're doing you're working on but uh
0: a hundred percent
1: but when i when i emerged From One of those rounds in uh, like 2013, 2014, everyone I knew, everyone in my little social circle was talking about this band, the 1975, the 1975. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have to hear it. You have to hear it. And it's one of those really immature things that we do where when a bunch of people tell you, oh, you have to see this, you have to hear this, your brain eventually shuts off and says, no. I don't have to. I'm not going to. So, I think that, that is, I talk about this a lot.
0: That, that that That's a certain personality type. Like I'm the type of person that when everybody tells me I, I can't, I can't be the person who doesn't know about something. So I go and listen. But my best friend is the type of person that it's like, if four people tell him to hear it, he will intentionally never hear it.
1: That's, that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing mm. with, with the 1975. And then my first real experience was I had a, A buddy of mine who did a drum cover in my studio, he came in and covered a 1975 song. I believe it was, uh, Hmm. uh, oh gosh, uh, She's American? Okay, yeah. He brought in that song. I was like, who is this? He's like, this is 1975. And I'm just like, damn, this is really good. Yeah, that's an amazing (laughs) song. And from there, I bought the record and became completely enamored with them. And uh, my, my good friend and former vocalist, Mr. Jake Turner, who I'll probably plug here again in a minute... Is is gonna hate hearing this because to him I still never admit that I like the nineteen seventy five. He's all about them, and I'm. I just I was like, yeah. I'm just like, yeah. They're okay. I'm. So I'm, this is me coming out to the world. I fucking love the nineteen seventy five, and I'm. I'm no longer ashamed of it. I've reached that point now. It's been two years. I'm just gonna accept it. <laughs>
0: Well, if there's one thing I'd like to do on this podcast is get more people to come out of the 1975 closet. <laughs> so, so with that, let's uh, wrap up
1: with the last question, which is uh, what have you been working on lately? I've been doing, as, as I've said before, lots of developmental work. I've been working very closely with uh, some dear friends. One, Jake Turner. He was my vocalist in a day away. Since then, he's, uh, he's become quite the hustler. He is uh, part of a, a company called uh, the Turner and Smith Entertainment Group. With, uh, Mr. Casey Smith, formerly Romance on a Rocket Ship, uh, from back in like the 2009, 2010 MySpace days. Casey at one point was signed to, uh, I believe Island Records after some work we did together. But Jake and Casey have, have gone off and formed this little group and I've partnered in nicely. We do quite a bit of writing together. We work with a lot of younger clients, um... Try to try to like help them with branding and building them up and shopping them. Trying to trying to get them placed with the with the right management or talent agencies that can help take them to the next level. That's really really rewarding. I've been doing like I said quite quite a bit of writing. Uh, we just we write together and we do we you know we're building a catalog. Writing was something that I did as a producer for my clients for the longest time. But actually now being part of a writing group and getting together at regular intervals just to like pop out songs, have a library, submit those songs to, to different companies and, and get their feel on it, see if something might be a fit for one of their artists. That's, that's something cool that I've been doing lately. With Turner and Smith, I, I've been working with a band named uh, Captains Courageous from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm going to give those guys a shout out because they're some of my very good friends. They've been uh, churning up a lot, of, a lot of dust in the industry and uh, some big things coming their way for them, hopefully pretty soon. Nice. So I've been I've been partnered in with them. I've been writing with them and doing producing some singles for them. Now that I've got my my partners in crime, Mr. Jake Turner and Mr. Casey Smith in on it, things are starting to get some traction there. And uh, they're 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 probably the the biggest band in St. Louis right now for as far as as far as draw. And St. Louis has got a pretty sizable scene. A lot of a lot of great bands have come out of St. Louis in the last fifteen years. So it's it's kind of cool to be there on that threshold and and just just kind of watching good things happen for them after seeing all the work that they've put in so hopefully in the next you know six to 12 months that's gonna be a name a lot of people have heard uh, do you have anything else you want to plug or is that it um I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one more one more plug in there for something I've been uh, I've been working on lately or working with lately uh, and that is I, I mentioned earlier what a proponent of technology I've become uh, since since uh, really getting involved in digital production. Uh, last month, a new product dropped from Slate Digital that I've been playing mm-hmm. around with. Have you heard of the virtual microphone system?
0: I've heard of it. I've not done anything with it yet.
1: I, I'll let, oh, that's the answer that a lot of people give me. And mm-hmm. I, I, it was very uh, vindicating for me to actually get this product and play around with it and, and see just how far the technology has come. Because it's I, – I, man, if I would have thought about it, I totally could have hooked that up and I could have recorded the uh, recorded through that today. But uh, ah. it's but it's it's a fantastic little system. Just it, using a using a flat response microphone and a really discreet clean preamp to to get the get the signal into your DAW. It's uh it's just a really cool piece of technology, and it makes me really excited for where things are going in the future. Because if they these guys can come out with a system that emulates not perfectly, but Pretty fucking good, the sound of you know a forty seven or a two fifty one or an eight hundred like I mean like you 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 listen to the tube emulation of the forty seven you 're like, wow, this is you know this this sounds like a fifteen thousand dollar microphone like hmm. if you if you get down there and you a b it i mean i 'm sure the discerning ear could still pick out a difference but it just makes me really excited for where the uh, the technology of production's going, and I completely plan on on being at the forefront of that, just adopting those technologies, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and incorporating it into my, my production workflow and try to make a better product for my clients. That's That's something I'm very passionate about.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, facebook share or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that please check out noise creators website and take a look around we have tons of interviews discographies spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service if you are unsure about who your band should work with we can help you get the best producer fit for your record to keep up with us follow at noise creators on twitter instagram soundcloud tumblr or facebook this podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found including itunes and stitcher I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessicannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this
1: going.